Welcome to the Discipleship Helps Podcast. This podcast is designed to accompany you as you work through the book, Discipleship Helps. This book guides us through foundational doctrine every disciple should know. From time to time, you'll be able to pause and write your answers to the questions in the workbook. We encourage you to read each scripture and cover this journey in prayer. So without further ado, let's begin. We hope you enjoy. So y'all are totally cool with the Torah being the way, the truth, and the life. Is everybody good with that? Someone explain that to me. What does that mean? Because are we saved by the Torah? Then how is the Torah the way, the truth, and the life? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, good. Yeah. Which I didn't want, but I never got. You can always challenge anything that is said in this forum. On a Sunday morning, it's not as open, so you might have to talk to us afterwards. But in this forum, you can challenge anything that is said. Do y'all hear me on that? We cover things. These are foundational things that we're covering. And if we aren't all on the same page as we move forward, it is to our detriment. So it's important that if you feel uneasy or unsure about something that was just said, you are free to raise your hand and say, I disagree with that, or I'm not sure about that. Could you please further elaborate? All of that is okay in this form. It's encouraged in this form. Cool? The Torah being the way, the truth, and the life. Let me answer that real quick. That's what they used to say about the Torah. So Hebrew people, Jewish people, Israelites would say, The Torah is the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that has several implications. He is the living, breathing, walking Torah, right? Matthew 5, 17 says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what does abolish mean? Teach incorrectly, do away with, right? Fulfill meant what? Teach you how to correctly walk it out, right? Correctly interpret it, put it on better footing. So we know that Jesus did not come to do away with it. He was the embodiment of it. Remember the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law tells us what God commands. The prophets tells us what what will happen if we don't obey or if we do obey. The writings tell us how to live it out. You remember that? Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who are the three people there? Moses represents the what? Elijah, Jesus, the writings, because he shows us how to live it out. So we see all of the Tanakh there on the Mount of Transfiguration together. Jesus is the living, breathing, walking Torah. Moses and Elijah are witnessing, the two witnesses witnessing to Jesus as the Messiah. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that is not doing away with the Torah. It's saying, hey, here's what you've been looking for. That's what he's saying when he says that. So that's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where that comes from. That's what that meant. Shane, you had a question? So I've understood like the logic behind it, the scriptural argument, just the historical argument behind the Torah is the way, the truth, and the life. But what's the importance of us actually saying that? Because to me, that makes things a lot more confusing for people, especially like newer Christians. Instead of simply saying, like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why is it important that we understand, like, Torah is as well? Beautiful. One thing I loved about being in Israel is, and I want to restate your question just to make sure that I've got it right, but let me first explain this. One thing I loved about being in Israel is that the commands of God literally shaped their culture. 
their way of life, right? Would you guys agree? Yeah. Uh, what we see is nowadays most people live their lives as Christians uh, with an understanding that the Spirit leads me throughout my day, and that's what determines how I live my life. And so oftentimes people will have, well, God has told me this, so it may not make sense to all of you, but God has told me this, therefore this is how I live, right? And so we each, rather than being a community, have our own personal Jesus, our own personal salvation, and this is what the Lord has told me, which you may not understand, that's fine, but I'm doing my thing, which often includes not going to church, right? or doing whatever I think is best, even if, you, even if it doesn't make any sense or might not even align with the word, okay? So oftentimes, this is, this is how we modern Christians are living our lives. They live their lives based off of this. The standards for the community are based off of this. Their feasts, their days, the way that they spend their time, the way they pray, what they value, how they treat the widows, the poor, the orphans, justice and injustice, all of it is determined from this. When someone says, God has told me this, to them that would sound weird if it wasn't from the word. We are way imbalanced on one side, right? And that side is no accountability, not knowing the word, we all are fending for ourselves. What they have down is living in community and understanding that the community reports to God. The accountability is determined by the word, the Torah, the living, breathing word of God. We would do much better to stop isolating ourselves, living on an island saying, well, the Lord tells me this, 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 to where not much of what we're doing is based on the word, but a lot more about how we think that God should be. So when we say, why is it beneficial to say that the Torah is the way, the truth, and the life? Is that a proper restatement? Yeah. Okay. So the Torah is the way, the truth, and the life. If I were here last week, and this was my mistake for not communicating this more properly to Anthony, I would have explained to you guys what I just now said about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, and, and the meaning of that statement. That being said, I think if we were to get our way, to get our truth, and to learn how to live our lives from this more that we would be on better footing, especially as a community, because it would be a, a unified standard for how we live. Does that make sense? And Nick, that they were referring to, would that be Messianic Jews, not Israel as a country, right? You know, I would say, not, not Orthodox, I would say that people who are Torah observant, those are the people that I'd be referring to. So that would include Orthodox, but it would also include normal people just like us who just choose to live their lives according to the standard of Torah. And so when I say living according to the standard of Torah, because we're talking about that more and more, I want to clarify what I mean. Unequivocally, we cannot be saved by following the commands of God. That's not our salvation. Our salvation doesn't just come from following the commands. Our salvation comes, we're saved by grace through faith, right? We, we have always been, but that's always been how salvation has occurred. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Noah was saved by grace through faith. It's always been that way, okay? Now, the way is made for us through Jesus. Jesus is 
the way, the truth, and the life. His sacrifice atoned for our sins. He is the fulfillment of these covenants, and we will see that covenant fulfilled literally when he returns because Israel will get to partake in it fully, and that's who it was originally given to. But when it comes to determining how you're going to live your life, what you value, how you celebrate holy days, right? What you teach your children, how you see others, how you interact with this world, right? You are being told how to do that. You are being given instructions on how to do that. It's being framed for you what's important from the moment that you're born. Whether it's by TV, your parents, magazines, school teachers, whatever, how you see this world and yourself and others and what you're called to do, that's being taught to you from when you're a little kid, right? All I'm saying is, why don't we let this be our teacher for what matters to us, for how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see our creator, right? Let's let this tell us what to value, what to see as important, how to respond to things that we see in this world, right? This is not the way that we will see uh, our, the salvation of our souls, but I think that there is a different kind of saving that happens when we live by these truths that we see in here. I think the world itself is being repaired, redeemed, and restored when we live according to the truths that we see in here. We were talking today, this morning, in Revelation. We were in Revelation 12. And it's interesting how Israel has not received salvation, eternal salvation, simply by possessing the commands and by living according to the commands. But it is interesting to see how many times that they as a nation have been physically saved. I was talking about a t-shirt that I saw in Israel that listed the different countries and nations that have tried to destroy Israel. And they listed them on a t-shirt and then crossed them out because they all had fallen. All the ones that had come against Israel had all fallen and Israel had been delivered from them all. And then it listed like a question mark at the end, like who's next? Right? So isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting to think, yeah, they haven't been spiritually saved, but my goodness, have they been physically saved as a nation over and over again? That's worth considering, isn't it? Yeah. So I lay all that out to say, I think we have grossly underestimated the importance of applying the standards of Torah, Tanakh in our lives and as a community, because this can be how we hold ourselves accountable and it should be. Otherwise, we're all just going on our own journey. And then if we happen to connect or overlap in different ways, it's surprising rather than expected. And I think it should be expected. Any questions or thoughts on that? Yes, ma'am. Um, is the Torah the whole Bible or is it just the New Testament? So when we say the Torah, how it gets translated in the New Testament is law. Law to us is like, blah, police sirens. Oh no, I'm speeding. Law, right? It's better understood as instruction. Okay? Torah would be the first five books. But when we talk about the instruction, you have to understand that it's more complex than that. So the commands that were given, the 613 commands, are found in the first five books. Those are, when you say Torah, that's typically what people are referring to. Tanakh is T-N-K. Torah 
Nevim, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the writings. Tanakh is when you put an A in between the T and the N, and an A between the N and the K, and put an H at the end. Tanakh, and that's the way that you get the, I don't know what the word for that is when you take acronym. When you take those and you put them together, Tanakh refers to the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. So that would be the entire Older Testament. Okay, does that make sense? Torah, first five books, Tanakh, whole Old Testament. That's the easiest way. Any other questions or thoughts before we move on? Good. Yeah. Cool. Let's do it. All right. Instructions about baptism. (laughs) Instructions about baptism. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 15 through 16, Alpha. Let's read the next one together. John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, 5. And Valentine, in your most manly, powerful voice, please stand up and declare to this room Romans 6, 3 through 4. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, 3-4. Come on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The word baptism actually means to be submersed or submerged or fully immersed in water. Baptism began with the ministry of John the Baptist and was an outward display of an inner work of repentance in the heart. I had a note that said, although the groundwork for baptism had been laid since the beginning, we're going to talk about that tonight. So he wrote in here uh, that John the Baptist began baptism. So I would say that differently. I know what he's saying. I would say it differently. I would say that baptism had been understood by the people before this so that when John the Baptist comes along, it's not this completely revolutionary thing, but it fits right in with what they had been taught. Okay? Mark 1.4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Brian, what was John's baptism for? Repentance. Okay, repentance. I wrote forgiveness of sins. Stephen, what is it to be immersed in repentance? It's to be like full of it or like full of change, full of being different than who you are. So it's just like covering every single action that you do. It's not just like, you know, you get dunked. It's, it's like your life is marked something different. And it's everything that you do. Good. Someone in here share with me a comprehensive definition of repentance. Fully submerged in repentance, turning 180, never to turn back again. Amen. Give me some practical examples of that. What are practical examples of repentance in someone's life? Veronica.
Okay. And be free of that and do whatever it takes to get away from that. Take me one step further in repentance. Someone was addicted to porn, so they stopped looking at porn. Take me one step further in repentance. They would see how they could be in, get involved in the whole sex trafficking. Yes, history. beautiful. And yes, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. Part of repentance would not only be turning away from what you were doing, but now walking in the other direction. Do you see that? What I was contributing towards, I am now destroying. I was contributing towards the works of the enemy, and now I am destroying the works of the enemy. Do you see that? Repentance. Submerged, immersed in repentance. How would repentance prepare a person's heart for Jesus? Kelly. Okay, we turn our hearts to love him. Someone help me out. We're going to camp here for just a second. How does repentance prepare a person's heart for Jesus? Garrett. You're already looking for him. You're already looking for him. How so? Tell me what you mean. Because, because you've turned away from sin and towards righteousness and towards him. You're already looking for him and going towards him mm-hmm. as he's looking for you. Love it. Love it. Yes, Hans. So if you fill off of last week, like one of the statements that I came to was faith was the precursor for um, repentance. Okay. Um, so in what do you mean by faith is the precursor for repentance? Um, you have to believe um, that, um, so there's a belief, a change. So let's say um, pornography is detrimental to me. Okay. So um, I have to believe that this way is better. So there's faith in believing that this way is better. Um, so that's a precursor to change. Okay. Um, and so from there um, comes uh, the um, repentance uh, bringing us to a place of submission. Okay. So believing um, that this way is the better way, um, and then coming to a place of submission. Um, submission. Good. Good. What else? Let's keep going. Yeah, Tim. I just I think about the story of the prodigal son. So when he realizes his uh, wrong, he turns and he turns back towards his father and goes back home, and his father is ready for him, waiting for him. And gives him, restores his identity as his son, and so he he turns, he repents, and and that allows him, allows his father, to give him his identity. Does everyone in here know the story of the prodigal sons? Tell me some different aspects in the story that would fit into the category of repentance for what the prodigal son does. Tell me several different things that he does that fit into the category of repentance. Humbles himself. Humbles himself. Comes home. He has an awareness of his sin. He asks for forgiveness. What else? He's desperate. He's desperate. What else? He leaves where he was. He leaves where he was. Say that again. He's willing to work. He's willing to be a servant. I will be the lowest position. That's also a huge part of it, mm-hmm. of repentance. How would repentance prepare a person's heart for Jesus? Someone else. 
Yes. So I, I would say with that same analogy, it's similar to what I said, is that the son realized there's nothing he could do on his own. He needed his father. Yes. Yes. He needed to repent, and that's what there's nothing I can do. It's what Jesus did. Yes. 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 I was thinking of person being prepared for Jesus, I think of the uh, temple So I think that repentance is good because it's like I'm not waiting for the last minute or living in sin, but I'm constantly checking and searching my heart so that I am prepared for him. So when he comes, I'm not like, oh, hold on a second. I got to repent really quick. It's like, it's no, good. I'm constantly repenting. That's good. So repentance from that story would also be having oil in your lamp and waiting, ready for him. So go back to the prodigal son for just a second. So the idea of how would repentance prepare a person's heart for Jesus? When the son comes back to the father and his heart says, I will be the lowest of servants in your house. I just want to come back. I just want to return. Do you see how repentance has prepared his heart for Jesus in that moment? Our hearts are prepared for Jesus when through repentance we say, I don't care what it costs me or what I have to endure. I'll do anything. I just want to serve. I just want to be in your house. I don't need anything from it. I'm not expecting anything. You don't have to give me anything. I just want to be in your house. Now that prepares us for him to put a robe on us, to put a ring on our finger, to put sandals on our feet. Do you see? We can't skip that part of the process. We can't even say, well, I'm coming back home. And I know in the past he's put a robe on me. He's put a ring on my fingers, put sand on my feet. So I'm expecting that. No, the attitude has to be, I'll do anything. I'll be a servant. I I just want to come back home. I just want to be home with you. I just want to be there with you. Right? This is how a person's heart gets prepared from repentance. Would mature repentance be fully embracing the father's response? Mm. Tell me what you mean by that. So the prodigal son coming back, and instead of being shy towards the father's response, but yet fully embracing it as he's coming towards him, would be a mature response from mm. repentance. Yeah, because maybe, maybe when you uh, repent and return home, you do get a beating. Yeah. Then is the father still good? Right. Are you still glad you repented? Yes. Are you still glad you came back home? Maybe there was no party. Maybe there was no ring, no robe, no sandals. Are you still glad you repented and came back home? That's good. Yes, I would say mature repentance is that. I think 2 Corinthians 7 is a perfect way. By the way, this is the standard that this church uses. 2 Corinthians 7. I think we've read this many times, but let's read it again. So when we enact church discipline what we're looking for, or when someone goes and then they become divisive and they're slandering or backbiting or causing division among the body, what we look for before the person returns is what we find in 2 Corinthians 7. Just so you guys know, this is what we do. And I would encourage you as you guys are developing families and growing families, I would apply these same standards even if my own children were to divide against the house. We would be looking for these same things in our children to determine if it was true repentance. Uh, verse starting in verse 10. Jose, would you read that loud and proud starting in verse 10? Uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Second Corinthians.
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads uh, no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Keep going. Uh, see that this godly sorrow has produced in you. By the way, what he's about to read is what we look for in people to determine if they are truly repentant. Because many people will weep, will cry, will moan, will long to be restored, will long to come back, but not display what we're about to read. Their hearts will break because they have been removed from fellowship or because they're not uh, in, a, in the place where they were before, where it was comfortable or they were surrounded by love or they were surrounded by fellowship. Their hearts will break for that. But if they were truly broken, they would display these things, okay? So sometimes people have a worldly sorrow, which is different than godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow will only lead to death. Godly sorrow looks like what Jose is about to read. What earnestness, what uh, eagerness to clean yourself, what indignation, uh, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what re- readiness? Readiness to see justice done at every point that uh, every point you have proved yourself to be uh, to be in innocent, innocent in your, in this matter. Good. So we see that repentance looks like this. So we talk about someone being baptized in repentance, immersed in repentance. It's going to look like these things. When someone comes and they say, you know, look, I want to apologize, but really, I mean, you did do these things, so that's not godly sorrow. When someone comes and they're like, yeah, I am really sorry, but, you know, I only did it because not godly sorrow, right? You need to get good at identifying the difference between true repentance, which is godly sorrow, and worldly sorrow, which only brings death. Because you might be looking at some alligator, crocodile tears. I don't know if it's crocodile, alligator. Some reptilian tears. You might be looking at a show, and really what's going on in the heart is it's still full of sin and wickedness. Okay? Seen it many times. Godly sorrow looks like this. There is a brokenness that comes, an earnestness. It is the kind of sorrow that says, it's when you see the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee saying, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Worldly. Godly sorrow is the tax collector saying, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner, please. Right? Realizing that he is broken. There is a difference. True repentance is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. True repentance comes from the Lord. It's a gift. And you have to learn to spot it. Not just see tears. Not just see someone weeping, wailing, mourning, gnashing of teeth. Not just that kind of stuff because that will happen on the day of judgment, won't it? There will be people who are weeping and gnashing. Right? But that's that's not a qualification. True repentance looks like this. It looks like earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, a readiness to see justice done. There are times when my children have, have said to me, I, I, I know that I need a spanking. I need, I need a spanking. I need to get a spanking. It's a longing to see justice done. They recognize that there has been an infraction, that there has been a sin committed, and, and justice needs to be done. Whatever the penalty is, I'll pay it, right? 
That's true repentance, right? Yeah. requires humility and whenever we humble ourselves we are crucifying our flesh 100% of the time to humble yourself it crucifies your flesh and then we're starting to get into what this chapter later talks about about being crucified with Christ and you know as we talk about how repentance prepares a way um for Christ, you know, it, it helps us to be like him, not that, not to be like him in that he um, needed to repent for anything, but to be like him in humility and in crucifying the flesh. And we know that Peter talks about when we crucify the flesh, we are made alive in the spirit. And so, you know, I think that's an important aspect of repentance is humility, how humility is Required. Nobody can repent without humility. And in order to humble ourselves, our flesh must be crucified. And when we do that, and when we make that choice, you know, whenever we need to, we can experience Christ and the nature of Christ with us in that moment. Uh, Has anyone in this room, have you guys ever apologized and not truly meant it? Yes. That's worthless, you know. To apologize and not truly mean it, meaning you're not repentant, is worthless. But we also have been taught that saying you're sorry does something. It does nothing. If you're not repenting, it does nothing. There is no Bible verse that says to say you're sorry. Right? Okay. How does baptism bring us to the forgiveness of sins? Alan, what did you write on this? When we believe in repentance and the faith to be forgiven, it's as though Abraham What's believed. That? You, you, <laughs> he, he had his museum voice on. Sorry. Go ahead. You can speak loudly. Uh, when we believe in repentance and the faith to be forgiven, it's as though as, uh, Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. Okay. Good. Luke, what did you write? <clears throat> get baptized we are a new creation that uh, when we are baptized we are saved okay how does that bring us to the forgiveness of sins you got it you got it I would say I don't know what so you wrote we are saved when we're baptized we're saved saved from what Okay. We have put on Christ. We have put on Christ. Yeah. We are saved from our old ways. And the forgiveness comes when we leave our old ways. Right? We experience the fruit of forgiveness. We experience the blessings of forgiveness. That's good. That's why John the Baptist said, Who told you to flee the coming wrath? Remember? When the uh, Pharisees came to him at the river? He said, who told you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Mm. Remember? <coughs> Baptism brings us to the forgiveness of sins. That's why John was pushing, them, pushing back on them. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What they were looking at was baptism. They were looking to be a part of baptism. 
he told them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance because baptism is the culmination of that, the picture of that. See? I was watching, uh, this morning I was watching failed baptisms like on like videos. Just baptisms that were like, had gone wrong, right? Have you all ever seen the one where the kid cannonballs into the baptismal? The, the, the pastor is waiting. It's a, he's dressed nicely. You can tell he's a very like professional man, you know. And this kid like Caleb's age, you just see him fly out of the side, and he cannonballs into the baptismal, splashes the pastor. And then there's other ones where they're baptizing like little toddlers, you know, at Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic. I don't know who does that, but. They're baptizing toddlers, and they're speaking like, do you, you know, say no to Satan's false promises? And the toddlers are like, no, I don't want any part of this. Another time, like, a four-year-old is like, no, I don't want to do this, you know? And the parents are making them, and it's like, that's so funny. They're like, no, just do it, just, you know? And it's like, what does this even mean? You had a thought. So we're going to see that the cleansing and the washing, yeah, from Leviticus uh, is part of it, uh, is something that they were familiar with, the idea of cleansing and washing, and not just outwardly, but also inwardly, um, that it was part of their uh, orderly worship, and that they, they would have understand, understood it you know, in, the, in that context. So for sure, we'll get there in just a second. So to be baptized is to submit oneself to discipleship. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? When you get baptized, you are submitting yourself to discipleship. Yes, ma'am. Well, I have, going back to, um, in Ephesians 14, 31, I've always loved Ephesians what? No, uh, Exodus. For, Exodus 14, okay. 31. Okay. Um, and the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians when he parted the water. And, and I've always, this has been the, the very first baptism of taking out all the enemies that are following mm. you was that mm. at that time that the Lord opened up the, the land, they, they walked through on dry land, mm. but they were submerged even though they never got wet, right? Yeah. They were under the water and, and, then, um, and, and then all their enemies were killed behind them. And mm. that's... That's baptism. All right, spoiler alert. So let's do... No, let's go there. It's good. It's good. Let's just do it. Let's just do this. So... Uh, I wrote down... Let's see. We have 1 Corinthians 10. Now let's, okay, keep your finger in Exodus and let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 real quick. How many times do people need to hear something on average before it sinks in? How many times? I haven't heard that enough for it to sink in. Yet. I, don't know. I thought it was nine. I could be wrong. Ten. 
All right, uh, verse two, Zach, what, would you read 1 Corinthians 10? Uh, yeah, read verse two. Yeah, 10 verse two. You can do one and two. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so we see Paul clearly understands that the nation was baptized through the sea. They passed through the waters. Now, if I didn't have my shoes on, which I considered doing tonight, but I chose not to, you could picture my toes. They're like this, right? When they went into the water and they would do a mikvah, I could bring up a huge picture for you to show you all these mikvahs, hundreds of them surrounding Jerusalem that would have been available if people would have mass converted like they did on the day of Pentecost, right? For people to get baptized. Anyways, when they got baptized, they would go down into these mikvahs and then walk up the other side. Different. So this is the way that they would do their ceremonial washing. They would hold open their fingers and open their toes and they would walk in and they would go all the way down into the water to where they would be under their head and then they would walk up the other side. This was so that every part of them would be submerged, would be washed by the water and made clean. This was a mikvah. So the whole nation passed through the Red Sea and was baptized, washed, made clean together. So we're back in Exodus 14. Wait, time out. Okay. (laughs) Everything dried up when they walked through. Yes. So it's symbolic. Symbolic. Because the people are walking through, coming down, walking through, and walking up. So if we're only thinking in terms of the water, sure. But if you're looking at them from the side, right, you're seeing them pass, come down, pass through water, and come up. Do you see that? It literally looks like a mikvah as they're going down into the Red Sea, passing through, and then coming up the other side. Do you see that? Yeah. So, so if they were to do all these ceremonial cleanings, it's always in the Red Sea? No. Oh. No. No, no, no. They, they, they made mikvahs. They dug them out. Or they would use running water. And they would do it by running water. Is this something they had to do a lot or one and done? We'll explain that here in just a second. So let me, let me get through Exodus 14 and I'll, I'll show you guys something. Because I want... What's that? Once make foot, always Once make foot, always make foot. Okay. So we see in verse uh, 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Look at verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared their Lord and put their trust or faith in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, what we read in Nehemiah, please don't make me prove this to you. 
is that the pillar of cloud is the spirit leading the people. So the pillar of cloud is God's presence, his spirit leading the people. So what do we see? We see that moments before this, what are the people doing? Passover, blood of the lamb, and it saves them, does it not? So they are saved by the blood of the lamb, and then they pass through the waters, baptized through the waters, and the spirit of God is present there at their salvation. Do you see that? So we have the blood of the lamb and the spirit and the water. We see these things present for the nation of Israel as they're being saved from their enemies. Still, to this day, the greatest salvation that Israel has ever experienced in their own, from their own mouths would be the salvation from Egypt. Still their greatest saving that has ever happened. They were physically saved from their enemies. We look at it, salvation is inward for us. They see it very practically. Salvation is physical. It will be both for them. They will be delivered from their enemies, which will be surrounding them when Messiah returns, and their sins will also be forgiven. Physical and spiritual salvation. So who, who asked the question about the ritual cleansings? Naomi. Naomi, okay. Did you? <laughs> no, I did about if, if they had to do it one and done or if they, if, if they had to keep on doing what the walking through. So this was something that was part of ritual cleansing. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to go through uh, Leviticus potentially. Maybe not. What's that? No, no, it's this one. Um, let's do this. Let's keep going with the, the book and then we'll, we'll get there. Good. The ministry of Jesus continued the practice of water baptism, but it had a very different purpose, that of identification with Christ. Jesus' disciples are those who have separated themselves from their old manner of life and who now join themselves to Jesus and live their lives as he directs. Galatians 2.20. Ian, will you read that for me, please? Yes, sir. Us. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Okay. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Have we read that yet? No. Yeah. Why don't we go there? We read it at the very beginning. Emily, would you read that loud and proud for us again, please? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Good. When you guys think about Jesus being crucified... Do most of us picture him the stool in me? 
Do most of you picture him up on a hill, right? And people are walking down there and the hill is up over here. And you picture him up on a cross. So what we saw while we were there is Golgotha or the place where he was crucified. He actually would have been at eye level as you were passing by. And people would have seen him as they were passing by. And this was meant to shame the person who was being crucified. So like Luke, Dan, Alan, come up here and pass by me from the side. So if I would have been standing like this because I'm being crucified, right? But I would have been just elevated up off the ground, just a little bit right here, so that I'm at eye level as they pass by me. Do you see that? And so this would have been the way that he was crucified. And they would have passed by like that. Okay, go ahead, Elena. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm doing it. They're taking this long stick and they've stabbed him with it. But I actually don't know if I see a long stick in scripture. But so, so think about this. So think about this. When you go, when you go to Israel, and you will, when you go there, they didn't have a lot of long, tall trees to be cutting up and making into giant crosses. What they did have is smaller trees like olive trees everywhere. So they would have people carry their cross beam and then they would simply nail the cross beam to those existing trees or those stumps that would have been there, right? And then they would have crucified them on that because those were a lot more readily available. It's, it's, it's interesting, even, even the, uh, the Via Dolorosa, a lot of things that, um, that we see or that we know have been commercialized, right? Or have, someone got it wrong a long time ago that was part of the Catholic Church. They built a big building. They made it the official spot. And then no one has taken the time or the effort or paid the money to move it or change it once they found new information. So they continue to promote it as the spot where these things have happened or the way that something happened. So it's misinformation and it's too much to get, get it back on track, right? So that, that was, several things were like that in Israel. It's like curses and names hung on a tree. It's like literally hung on a tree. Yeah. Wow. Right. Well, that, that was what Eric said. What? So it's possible that the cedar, uh, that the, the, the beam was cedar and that, that it was nailed to an olive tree. So I don't know exactly, but I have pictures of Golgotha, like the, the place of the skull. And you can see like the, the picture of the skull, yeah. right? It's crazy. Yes, sir. I'm just reading this because I thought of it. Okay. So John 19, mm-hmm. verse 29, well, 28, later knowing all was completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge in a stock of hyssop, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Okay. So it's hard to picture that if you're right. I'm just, you know. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they lifted it. I don't know if it was, anyone want to be close to him. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that that place where they were, 
has now been turned into uh, a parking lot. So at Golgotha, so it, and it has over it, Muhammad has no sons, or Allah has no sons, Muhammad is his prophet, and something about it being now a burial ground for warriors. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I think maybe we might be talking about semantics, because when you go to see it, and you see the original... Uh, picture of Golgotha, it is a main road that passes in front of the skull. And you can see there is along the main road, it's like, you know, the stage and the, and the ground. We're not talking about Jesus being lifted high up on a hill, up high upon a cross. We're, we're realizing that he was more closer to the level of ground level than we previous thought, previously thought. Because the Romans would have warned those who walked by to say, this is what happens to those who mess with Rome. And they would have lined the crosses all along that road. And so how high we're talking about, I mean, it could be a few more feet but the point is is that we I originally thought from depiction that Jesus was up on way a hill. far away up on a giant hill yeah. people are way, way down there time. and they can see him off in the distance but what we're saying is what we realize after being there is he was much closer to ground level than we previously realized That's more intimate. yeah so, what is being crucified with Christ? Matt, what did you write? I wrote, your flesh is being sacrificed to death so we can walk in a new life, one that is filled with power. That's good. Uh, anyone else? What is being crucified with Christ? Yes. Yes, I wrote, being crucified with Christ means that we have a new love, the lust of the flesh, and the love of things of this world have been crucified. Now we live for Christ, though we do not see him. Amen. Mm. Amen. Beautiful. So what is the result? Mm. What's that? <coughs> Rebirth. How so? So your old man is dead and changed How am I reborn? Okay. What is reborn? Born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. And how am I able to be born of the Spirit? I said we no longer are slaves to our old self. We have authority to walk according to the Spirit. Okay. And yes. True. True. That's good. I have 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest Beautiful. I agree. We nailed the result. That is the result. We are a new creation and we walk by the Spirit. Side question. How are we able to be born of the Spirit? Can anyone remind us? A new Spirit is put inside of us. A new Spirit is put inside of us? Okay. Yeah. By being crucified with Christ so that we can share in His death and crucifying our flesh so that we can also share in a rebirth and a raising back with Christ. 
and get that life from the Spirit that you gave us. Okay, I like it. I like where we're going. Wrestle with this for just a second. How am I able to be born of the Spirit? How do I get that choice? <clears throat> That's a wonderful answer. I, I want to know from you guys, how do we have the choice to be able to be born of the Spirit? This is apologetics. Let's say that you're sitting across from someone who does not necessarily understand our vernacular, and they're like, born of the Spirit? What? I, I think it goes back to what we talked about a while ago in Discipleship Helps about our authority yes. and how in the garden we were given authority mm-hmm. and we chose and gave it over to the serpent where we then had given up our authority and like Romans talked about, all of creation was then subject to futility, not willingly, but it was subject and all of us have been born into this life of sin and death. But through Jesus coming out, coming down and actually being born of the spirit, the yes. firstborn of creation, he walked it out perfectly and now all of us who choose to trust in him, he has won back that authority, so we now have that power to choose life yes. and death. Yes, 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 That is the, That is the, the perfect explanation of why we are able to choose to be born of the Spirit, what it means to be born again. Pretty important question, right? What does it mean to be born again? What he just now said is exactly right. Yep. Christ was born of the Spirit, and in the same way that one man's choice caused us all to be born in the flesh, in sin, in death, now one man's choice allows us to be born of the Spirit, because that's what he was born of. He was born of the Spirit, and so we get to be his sons when we choose to live like him, through him. Do you see that? That's what it means to be born again. So that's the result. How does this happen? You guys have answered that pretty thoroughly. Anybody want to take one last stab at it? So we are crucified with Christ. Our flesh dies. What is the result? We are born again of the Spirit. How does this happen? Just as Christ was uh, resurrected by the Spirit, that same Spirit... (coughs) Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Beautiful. So how does the person baptized into Christ Jesus now live? Oh, be be confident. That is the right answer. By faith. What's another word for faith? Trust. Trust. I live trusting. Do I need to trust when I already know the answers and have all the provision in hand? My trust comes into play when I don't know all the answers, when I don't have all the provision, when I don't have all the strength, when I don't have all the energy, when I don't know where things are going to come from, then I have to trust. 
Can you see how dangerous it would be if we eliminated our need to trust every day? And if we simply lived by logic and by what we could see and understand? One might even say we are not living by faith at all. So are we demonstrating that we've been born again? Have we simply just been baptized into repentance and not into Christ? If we turn from our bad works but are not living by faith. Galatians 3.27 explains baptism in a different light. Eddie, would you read that for us, please? Yes. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Okay, what does this mean to you, Eddie? I wrote down that uh, this means to me that that I am covered by the blood of Christ and all that he is, which is the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, uh, fruitfulness, and gentleness, self-control. Okay, beautiful. That was who Christ was. That is the way that he lived, and and now that's the way that we live. What does this mean to you? Miss Brenda, would you mind sharing with us what you wrote? We've gotten rid of our filthy rags, our old self, our desires, our fruitless acts, and put on something new, completely provided by and in the likeness of Christ. Beautiful. Anyone else? Yeah, Maya. Sermon that Massey did a while ago with the coats and like taking off the coat like of the world and all the lies and the way that the world works, yeah. like that system and putting on the coat of Christ and like the truth that he says about you, the truth that he views the world through. Um, just like taking off the lies and putting the truth on instead, and it changes the mindset and everything. Good, good, Natalie. I, I thought of it more of as like now he's my covering, mm-hmm. like as, as like um, how the like a husband wife kind of situation, yes. like now. Now I submit everything under him yeah. versus before I used to submit it unto myself. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I wrote my covering before God and also the person the world sees is Christ. My covering before God is Christ and the person that the world sees is Christ. For me, that's what it means to be baptized into Christ and to clothe myself with him. Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that Christ lives in me. How do we practice this practically? Sorry, can we go back real fast? Yes, please. I just wanted to read this. This is uh, Zechariah 3. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said uh, to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also in charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Amen. Amen. Tell us what that means. Uh, coming before the Lord, right? Uh, before baptism, we are clothed in our sin and our old man. And... Um, after we're baptized, those old things are taken away from us and we are completely different, right? It's not yes. making those old garments better. It's completely getting rid of them and clothing us in something that is new and clean. Yeah. And being able to come before the Lord in that rather than in our filthy garments. And Joshua was clothed with these new garments for what? to what end? To serve the Lord. And to walk to the serve the Lord. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you had something? Mm. It's not just like uh, I'm going through the motions to make myself externally look well, 
but I'm rending my heart to walk with Christ. Yes, good. Yes. Uh, something, something interesting, all that's coming together with what he said and what he said. Is that because what I put is that is a choice. We, so Zechariah was saying that the Lord clothed you, but he also gave you a, a, a commandment, instruction. Now walk in these things, like daily clothe yourself in mm. your character. Because I put Christ's nature and character is clothed upon me. I don't see much of the code, I see is more of the, who he is, his identity, who he is, his identity and character. So it's like, it struck me because it's a choice. Mm. It's not just something that he does once and then walk in it. Like you have some supernatural power, even though it is mm. to walk in, in his character is supernatural. Yeah. But it's like it's it's a it's a daily choice today. Today I choose kindness. Today I choose gentleness. There is a fantastic life changing freedom when you learn to take each day at a time. I mean it changes everything. So often we are plagued and haunted by the past, or we are completely useless because we're uh, living in the future. But there is something so powerful about learning to live in today. To wake up, to deny myself, to pick up my cross, to follow him, to live in resurrection power, to seek him for what I need today, to not worry about tomorrow. There is something so powerful and freeing when we learn to live that way. We learn to live that way. It's good, Owen. Thank you. Uh, so how do we practice this practically? Uh, someone give me that. Luke, go ahead. You got to speak twice as loud as you normally do. Go ahead. I said that we meditate on it day and night. That's like 1.2 times louder. <laughs> Come on. Come, Come on, on baby. Come on. I said, well, that, I said that we meditate on it day and night so that we, be, we may be careful to do all that is according to Yes, I agree, 100%. You started off twice as loud and ended up one times as loud. <laughs> I love you, I love you. Good, give me, give me one more. How do we practically practice this that Christ lives in me? Yes, Dan. By living, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. The leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay, good, good. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. There is another way the word baptism is used in the New Testament, and that is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Acts 1.5. Yes. Yes. Whenever we are in worship on Sunday mornings or whenever we're in worship at home groups or when we're worshiping together... Do you guys regularly pray in the Spirit? Yeah. Are you guys regularly praying in the Spirit? I'm asking you this. Does this side of the room, because I heard this side. Does this, you guys, I wasn't looking over here. That's the only reason. When we're praying in the Spirit, uh, while we're worshiping, there's something unifying and something powerful that's happening. It's a humble thing that we're doing, but it's also stirring up our faith. It's edifying our faith whenever we pray in the Spirit. I want to encourage you that if you're looking to contribute to the atmosphere of a room during worship, pray in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you need to overpower everyone else while you're praying in the Spirit. No, quite the contrary. What I'm saying is pray in the Spirit, do it audibly, 
Don't be afraid or ashamed, but pray in the Spirit. And the way that I look at it is it's like you, you are stirring the atmosphere as you're praying in the Spirit. Okay? So praying in English, yes, 100%. Do it. Praying in the Spirit is also something that greatly contributes to the atmosphere in a room. So even this Sunday, even whenever, next time that you guys are together and you're worshiping together, begin to pray in the Spirit. Let that be a regular practice. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, even if many people in the room don't pray in the Spirit. I would say even at that point, it's almost even more powerful. Okay? Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Regularly pray in the Spirit, and it stirs the atmosphere of a room. Okay? Acts 1.5. Marsha, would you mind? Beautiful. So he said, John baptized with water, but something different altogether is that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, was Jesus there physically when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit? No. No. What do you think Jesus means by baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit? Sharon, if you were to answer that question, what would you say? No, even if you, just going off the top of your head, what do you think Jesus means by baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit? He covers us. He fills us and he covers us and empowers us. Fills us, covers us, empowers us. Good. What else? What does he mean by baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit? Henry. Uh, we will be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to love. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Jamarian, what do you think that Jesus means by baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit? That's okay. If I'm asking you, what do you think baptism in the Holy Spirit means? Okay. Big brother, you want to help him out a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I put, uh, I believe that this is when the Holy Spirit will come upon people, giving them the power and boldness to walk out their calling with every spiritual gift. Amen. Amen. Jamari and his spirit lives in you. We love you, buddy. Joel prophesied in Joel 2.28 that God would pour out his spirit on all mankind. And in Acts 2, 1 through 21, we see this was fulfilled. What was the common sign in Acts 2, 1 through 4, Acts 10, 44 through 46, and Acts 19, 1 through 6, that someone was baptized with the Holy Spirit? Speaking in tongues. So we see them speaking in tongues. Now, did anybody have footnotes where it says speaking in tongues? Or other languages. Oh, that is, uh, that has caused some confusion. Does anyone in this room have confusion about other languages or it being an unknown language? We can definitely go through that. Do you, do you have confusion on that? Okay. So for you, you see it. It could be other languages. It could. You've heard both sides. Are you personally confused? Okay. So when we see other languages or we see unknown languages, it's important for us to know to go to this verse. Go to 1 Corinthians 14. 
This is 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's see. Paul, would you mind reading verse 2, 3, and 4, please? It says, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. Okay. Does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. Keep going. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Here's the funny thing. When you read this to someone who says that it's other languages, the very first thing that they do is jump off the subject of tongues and say, well, see, prophecy is more important. Because there is a problem with tongues. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't make sense to our mind. Okay? It is a weird thing according to the world standards. Okay? It's a foreign thing. But what we see here clearly is that it is not another language. You are not speaking Japanese. Now, can the Lord perform a miracle and you speak a language you do not know and someone hears it and understands it in a moment? Yes, the Lord can do that in a moment. Yeah, go ahead. What's that? Sure. I mean, you could call it. You could call it that in a moment. So the miracle would be that you spoke a language you didn't know, and that to them it made perfect sense. So you were prophesying to them, and to you there was a miracle in speaking an unknown language. Sure. Yes. Uh, I, I had a question. Um, not for the sake of a lack of faith or doubt, because I'm sure and I definitely walked in in tongues here um, but for the sake of argument and being ready for the for an answer and I might the question I might be asked one day um, so the argument of if you're being filled with the spirit you must speak in tongues if you don't speak in tongues you not filled with the spirit yeah I disagree with that I, I disagree with that here here is what I would say and I'm not even saying that um, that there is complete unity uh, between me and even other uh, pastors in the one association. So I'm, I'm telling you what I feel that I see. We can show consistently that the people are speaking in tongues when they are filled with the Spirit. What I would tell every one of you in here is expect to speak in tongues when you are filled with the Spirit, period. What I would not say to you, though, is that if you do not speak in tongues, you are not filled with the Spirit. Okay? I believe that there are mental blocks and things that stop people from speaking in tongues that they have to get over, that the Lord has to heal or remove from them so that they can speak in tongues. Okay? I've seen that happen over and over again. I believe that that's why sometimes it takes someone four or five hours before they begin speaking in tongues. Okay? Because there are things that are being removed. That being said... I would not go as far as to say someone had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit because they did not speak in tongues. 
because I have also seen people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit, did not speak in tongues, but have performed other signs that are accompanying the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So, what would those be? I've seen someone prophesy. I've seen someone turn around, pray, and see people get healed. Uh, Danielle, like in the beginning, they were praying over people and they were getting healed, but they weren't. Correct. Correct. Perfect example. Yeah. Even among our own body. So we have several questions. Let me start here. Question. Yes. If I'm not speaking in tongues, am I missing out anything? So what I would say is, if someone is not speaking in tongues, there is something that has already been deposited in you, a tool that you've been given that you are not using. So I, I would say, yes, this is a tool that has been given to you. Use it. Our minds are what stop us. Yeah. That is the truth. Yes. When I'm standing in front of someone who is having difficulty speaking in tongues, I'm going to be very loving and very patient with them. But make no mistake about it. It is our minds that stop us from speaking in tongues. It is not that the Spirit is not willing, nor that the, the Lord has not given that to us or that He's not moving in that way. Andrew. Um, I wanted to ask another question or like kind of follow up on the um, tongues versus other languages. What okay. Great. Yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. It's in two. It's in Acts two. Yeah, it's in Acts two. Verse seven. Read it for us. <laughs> Utterly amazed, they asked, "Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians." Medes, Elamites, mm. residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and <laughs> Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, Vis visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. That's a lot. Languages. That's a lot of languages. Okay, so let's do this. How many people were in the upper room? 120. 120. How many languages did they just list? 15. Yeah, let's say 15. Okay. How many people were outside that room? Oh, 3,000 were saved. Okay. So we know thousands were outside that room, okay? So they're in a room, and there's 120 of them, and they're all praying. If, how many people are in this room right now? 70? Something like that? So let's all start talking. Everybody uh, start saying different uh, verses that you love, and we'll all start saying them out loud, or you can start saying the alphabet, or you can count numbers, or you can say movies that you like, or whatever, but let's all start talking at one time, right? Ready? Go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and he leads me beside still waters. Stop. Stop. We all were speaking English. Could you make heads or tails of that one language that we were speaking? No. No. I want to tell you this right now. They were praying in tongues, unknown languages. The miracle was that the interpretation was given to the hearer. 
That's why each of us hears them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. The message was clear, even though what was coming out could not be understood. Okay? We can see that it would have been a logistical nightmare to try and hear in all these different languages amidst all the regular noise of the crowd and then 120 different people. And how many would have spoke? Eight each speak one of the 15 languages? What was happening is they were speaking in tongues. We see that throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And the miracle is in the interpretation. Yeah. Perplexed. You're saying that if a person is not or does not speak in tongues, that that is reflective of some kind of a mental block. I, I I have found in the I don't know, let's say a hundred, and the hundred people that I've prayed uh, for to be filled with the Spirit, uh, many filled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues, right? You know, within the first ten, fifteen minutes or a few hours, okay, of us praying. The ones who have not spoken in tongues that I've prayed for, they feel the presence of God. They, they are, they're, being, they're, they're being overcome by the presence of God in the moment. This is seen by weeping, by smiling in the same moment. There is a joy. There's a peace. I know how to identify when someone's experiencing the presence of God. We can see it, right? Yeah. Someone's experiencing the presence of God. But there is also at the same time the mind working against what's going on, mm-hmm. Right? So my question is, how do you overcome that? How do we overcome that mental uh, block? What I tell people in those moments is to go back and ask the Lord to continually fill us. What we see is uh, the people that have done that, right? And they continually press in for more. He brings them to the place of whatever it is that is blocking, right? And he exposes that and shows, because it's a journey between them and him, right? If, if, every, if the only way for you to progress with him in his presence and in the spirit is for someone to guide you like that, if that's the only way, yeah. I, I feel like that cheapens what's going on. I feel like that can be something that the Lord uses. The Lord can use someone to guide us through what's going on in our hearts and in our minds in that moment. But I also encourage people to keep pressing in. Keep going further because they did just experience his presence. One of the things that I tell people in those moments is, hey, you know, have you been in those situations where you know that you're not where you're supposed to be or that something that's happening right now is not right? And the spirit is telling you, get out of there. This is not okay. What's happening is not right, right? His spirit's telling you that. But that's not what's happening in those moments. The spirit is actually testifying that what's going on is him. And the Lord's presence is, is, is showing, this is me. I'm doing this in you. And our mind is going, but that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand this. Why is it, shouldn't it just be happening? I don't understand. And there's so many things going on up here. So our spirit is being edified. The presence of God is coming over us, right? But there is something stopping us from stepping out and speaking out what we don't understand. And so there, there's something that is happening in that moment. And what I'm saying, my answer to your question is, I do believe that if we press in, that the Lord will show us, even if it takes a few days, right? He will show us. And, and I would encourage that person, keep pressing in. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't simply say, well, this is not for me. Other people, don't, don't no cop-outs. Keep pressing in. Keep seeking. Keep pushing in. And you won't be discouraged. You won't be discouraged. He won't leave you. So... In that, I've prayed for people to be filled with the Spirit, but I've 
there have been times where like I've not felt anything, they haven't felt anything, they haven't seen anything. Yeah. And yet in faith I've been like partially in faith and partially because that's what I've seen other people do. Yeah. I've said like, hey, just trust in faith that the Lord has filled you in this moment. Go home and keep praying for tongues. Is that something that like I have to see something? Because I was praying and I'm like, this person's not weeping. They're not moving. I asked them afterwards, and they're like, I didn't feel anything in that moment. Yeah. And I wasn't feeling anything either as I was praying. And so I'm wondering, like, I guess, were they not filled with the Spirit there? Is that something that, like, I should have felt something there? They should have felt something? Or is it more of just step out in faith? Like, we believe if we've prayed, even if they don't feel anything, or even if there's no outward sign from them, that when we pray, they're filled with the Spirit. That's good. What do you guys think? I think you get an example like clearly throughout Acts where it's something that's seen or heard. You know, one thing that I'm learning as we go is that God's desire is to partner with us. And so we can't really just stand there and expect, you know, to be wiped out. It's like a surrender to him and his presence and the Holy Spirit. And then acting in faith as well, the person that we're praying over, acting in faith as well, and trusting the Lord with their tongue or, or prophesying afterwards. And so, like, um, really just uh, looking to, to see it or hear it, you know. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not happened. I think Ryan's a good, good case for mm-hmm. something changed in him. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't prophesy. Yeah. He didn't speak in a tongue. Yeah. But now afterwards, he's, yeah. you know, he's displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. It's good. So give me scripture because we want to we wanna address his question. Give me scripture to address Shane's question. So someone asks, does it happen every time? Is that right? Yeah. You, you can rephrase it if I get it wrong. No, it's basically that. Like, if you're praying and someone's not filled with the Spirit, like, do you just believe in faith that they were? Or like... Mm. Yes, sir. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Love that. So I, I think the faith aspect of it saying... You know, Lord, you prompt me in faith to pray for this person. You know I don't see it outwardly. I know that something's going on. Beautiful. And to be able for yourself, just to be able to continue to pray for them and check in with them, right? So I love that. I, I think whenever Jesus goes up to uh, Jairus' daughter, mm-hmm. he arrives at the house and the people are mourning her death because she's died. And he says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Were they all wrong? Did they not know how to tell if someone was dead? Was Jesus lying? What was going on? We serve the God who declares things that are not as though they were. Right? right? And so I think that that's one aspect. What else? So, just from my testimony and also scripture. Okay, so, I love that. <laughs> so, the, so, 1 Corinthians 14 says, in verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the gifts. Okay. I remember the day where... Pastor Massey prayed for me to get filled with the Spirit. Yeah. And I started speaking in tongues right away because yeah. I wanted it. Yeah. And I felt electricity flowing through my body. <laughs> really. And it, it, like, I think that that's also like a key factor is that you got to like, you, you got to desire it. You yeah. honestly desire it. Because like you said, it's a tool yes. that the Lord is giving us to advance His kingdom more. Yeah. In a way, it's like, in a way, I don't want to say it's like selfish to not desire but like then again like the Lord is giving you something to give him glory so why wouldn't you want to take it mm. and use it that's, that's so good Luke yeah. you, you 
you just did a fantastic job of sharing your experience with the word and then what the word very literally says. And that was fantastic, man. Great job. Um, we, we sat down with uh, two people in the church. I'll let them share their testimony, but it was in our living room. It was a husband and wife. And uh, they both, we were reading through it and they, they said, we want this. And so we said, we'll pray right now. And uh, we began praying and both of them were filled at the same time with the spirit and began to speak in tongues together at the same time. And uh, it, was, it was really beautiful to watch, but there have been times as well where I've prayed for someone, just like you said, and it was like nothing was happening. I think it's interesting that Pastor Eric, the way that he will deal with some people is he will ask them a few questions, gauge the moment, and he may tell someone, go and study some more. Stir up this desire for the Holy Spirit, and then come back and let's pray. So just because someone sees it in a moment, is like, well, I guess logically the next step is this. There's something different when someone eagerly desires. I walked up to someone else here, um, I forget, a few weeks ago, and uh, she came up to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, I walked up, and the Lord was already just on her, moving on her powerfully. And I simply said, let's not even waste any time, just begin speaking in tongues right now. And she did. And <laughs> because it's like, this is the Lord moving. Yeah. There's no coaxing. It's not, you know, pushing. Yeah. This is the Lord. And sometimes, you know, we just need, and it's, and I've seen, believe me, I've been through every different way where it feels like nothing is happening, where I'm sitting there with someone for hours, where I'm, I'm you know, speaking in tongues in their ears so that they can hear, so that they can overcome and not be afraid. I've walked away and it feels like that nothing happened in that. And then later on that night, they wake up, you know, in the middle of the night and they're speaking in tongues and they tell me about it the next morning. All those things have happened. And all I can say is at the end of the day, stir people up to eagerly desire the gifts. When you see that they eagerly desire, pray and the Lord will respond in those moments. Right. It's not as much of a formula as I would like. Correct. <laughs> as, as we all would like. As we all would like, yes. So, um, along with that, like, those who are filled with the Spirit and desire more of the Spirit, um, just for the sake of being able to, like, share this with somebody, because, like, I've experienced speaking in tongues, and I know, and so, like, I don't know how to... I guess my question is, can you be, is there, I don't want to ask this question, like, can you be filled with the Spirit and have, and may never speak in tongues, but still be eagerly pressing into what the, into the spiritual gifts, I suppose? It's great. That's a great question. Um, so I want to hit, we'll hit this and then we'll, we'll move on just to, to push through it. But I'll tell you this. Some people who have prayed for the Spirit as well, something can happen as you pray a few times and get discouraged because it doesn't happen. Something can happen where this feeling becomes a paralyzing feeling. And you enter into this place where it's, uh, it becomes an insecurity about tongues. I've, I've also seen, and I know that because that was my experience. Okay? Um, when we're talking about tongues and praying in tongues, I went up many times to be filled with the Spirit. And tongues was something that I had this love-hate relationship with. 
There'd be moments where it's like, okay, I want to be filled with the Spirit. And I would go up and it just wouldn't happen and I wouldn't understand. And so then in between, I would hate, I wouldn't even want to talk about it. I would be, this just frustrates me. I don't, you know, and there was frustration. What I would say is there's a community around here who believes in the gifts, practices the gifts, and it's, it is literally up to us to overcome our fear, not be discouraged, right, and not allow Satan's lies or any insecurities to dictate whether or not we obey what's in the word. We see in the word that we're supposed to pray in the spirit. It's there. We can, uh, we can try and, and, uh, and power through life, ignoring what's in the word, but we're missing out on some of the blessings that come. And so how bad do we really want the fullness? Will we fast? Will we pray? Will we continue to reach out, right? And not just in our own effort, but for more of God, right? So what I would say is continually stir up the gifts. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. My prayer this past Sunday was, Lord, baptize me in your spirit. Baptize me in your spirit. Baptize us in your spirit, even now. And I pray that prayer regularly. So it was not a one-time thing. It is not only a come up to the front when there's a call. I am wanting to be filled and baptized with his spirit over and over and over again. Just like I need wisdom in a moment. Just like I need courage in a moment. Just like I need provision in a moment. I need his spirit over and over again. So baptism in the spirit, immersion in the spirit. Whenever we get saved, is there a one-time baptism in repentance? Or do we live a life of repentance? Yeah. Is there a one-time filling of his spirit? Or do we live a life full of being filled with his spirit over and over and over again? Do you see that? I'm being saved every day. Yes. Keep pressing in. Keep wanting it. And when we put a timeline on how much time we're giving him to fill us, should we really be surprised if he doesn't always confine himself to our time, our timeline? Lord, you've got 20 minutes to fill me. Fill me in 20 minutes or I've got other things to do. Right. Isn't that so often what we do? Lord, you got I've got about 10 minutes or my legs are tired, so maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. We give him timelines, don't we? And then whenever we become tired or our mind really gets the best of us or we have, you know, duties, responsibilities, other things we have to tend to, do we really get to that place where everything else just gets put on hold and nothing will stop us from, from getting to the throne? Do we really get to those places? Sometimes that may be what it is. Sometimes that may be what he's asking of us. Press in until you get there. Daniel prayed for 21 days. And the angel said, I was dispatched as soon as you began to pray. Right? Daniel kept pressing in and the answer came to him. 
It's just food for thought. Naomi? Okay, well, I have a part one and a part two. So I'll do the part two with you later because I think I'm the only one that has problems. Okay. That'll be but for part one. You may be surprised, by the way. Oh, I doubt it. But <laughs> well, maybe you're right. But it's, 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 I, I'm way out there sometimes, so forgive me. Okay, so this first you're part. You're forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> with what you just talked about in terms of baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you, you, you seek that every day, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, on a practical level, does that mean that your tongue changes because he's giving you a different language. Are you getting a different language every time that you start speaking? So in all honesty, most of the time when I begin to pray in the spirit, it may start off with, this is something I'm familiar with. There are several different phrases in the spirit. And this is something I recognize. It's not something I'm consciously uh, trying to say. What are my phrases again? It's not that that's what I'm doing as I'm praying in the spirit. But there are phrases that I've become familiar with and accustomed to, and I start there when I'm praying in the Spirit. So it more starts out as something that's almost second nature. So I just begin to pray in the Spirit, but then something can happen as I'm praying in the Spirit where I feel His Spirit start to come upon me. In the same way that when I'm preaching in English, there are times when I'm talking, I'm kind of stumbling over my words. I can tell that what I'm saying is not anointed. But then all of a sudden, the spirit takes over, and I begin to flow in the words that I'm saying, and it begins to feel more like him, and the words that are coming out are more profound than even... I'm actually benefiting from what I'm saying, right? (laughs) Whereas when I normally talk, it's like, yeah, 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 right? But in the same way, when I pray in my spirit, some of the same things are at work. I start to pray, and it's like, I'm familiar... This is something that I naturally know. It doesn't necessarily move me. I'm not necessarily moved so powerfully in this moment. But as I keep praying in the spirit, especially as others begin to pray, something can happen in a moment and it switches. And now I can feel the spirit has come. He is now taking over. But I first made myself available. It's interesting to note that as the Israelites are passing over, from the desert to they're crossing the Jordan into the promised land, which by the way, remember, there was the first baptism as they were coming from Egypt into the desert, right? Salvation. And then that other baptism crossing over the Jordan because the waters parted for them. They crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. I would say that's a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what you see, and so you say, well, what about the Spirit in the very beginning? Well, the Spirit is present at salvation, Ephesians 1.13. He marks us with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing the deposit that was placed inside of us. This is also John 20.21, 20, where Jesus <coughs> breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, but then tells them to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when they cross over the Jordan, I'm saying that's a picture. But what's interesting is they talk, the rabbis talk about how as they're crossing into the water, that they get up to their nose in the water before the waters part. So literally that last moment, they're stepping out fully in faith. It's like, I, I was told this is what would happen. I'm hoping that the waters part. And right there, then they begin to recede, right? So it's a little bit different. Typically what people are wanting whenever they're going up for baptism in the Holy Spirit to pray in tongues, they're expecting to be taken over. And then the Lord just moves their mouth in that way. That's what people are expecting. And so they're waiting like, okay, 
And is this going to happen? Because they're waiting for the Lord to use them like a puppet. But let me ask you this. Anyone who walks by faith, is that how anything works with the Lord? Or does he ask us to take steps first? And then he begins to work it out. Do you see? So we have to change our mentality in the approach and, and think, no, no, no. This is not where you become a puppet because that's not how walking by faith works. This is where you step out and then he takes over. You see that? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay, last one. Come on. Okay. Well, You're good. Do your thing. Okay. Um, um, the, the concept of, you know, we were, were saying how many times can we pray for somebody? And, and I, I thought of um, Isaiah where he, he says that his word, his word mm. uh, doesn't go out of my mouth, and it doesn't return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the pur- purpose for which I sent it. And I believe that though we, we stand to, to pray in the Spirit and we speak, we don't see it. Again, it's a faith issue, but it's, it's by Him... And, and he will, um, it, it won't go out void. Yes. And, and even if it's, if it's a, a seedling, but it's yeah. not going out void, we, we need to speak it so that, that we, we speak it out. We Amen. 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 I think that goes along with declaring things that are not as though they were. Interesting. He said, Lazarus, come forth. That was a big step of faith. Could have gone really wrong. <laughs> right? But the Lord delivered him. So we see that they spoke in tongues. According to Acts 1.8 and Luke 24.49, what is the main reason for the Holy Spirit's outpouring? What's that? And be a witness. To be a witness. Yeah, to be witnesses of Jesus. To receive power and be witnesses of Jesus. So question number four, why do we need power? To be effective witnesses. To be effective witnesses? Okay. Out of the strength of the Spirit instead of our own strength. Out of the strength of the Spirit instead of our own strength. Exactly right. What's that? I wrote, because what we are called to cannot be accomplished in the flesh or by human strength. Amen? Anybody in a situation right now that they cannot accomplish in their own strength? Good. That's a good place to be. What kind of power do Peter and John display in Acts 3, 1 through 10? Healing power. What happened in Acts 4, 23 through 31? What is it? Natalie, say that again. They spoke boldly. And what else? I said that they prayed for boldness and then they received it. Okay, good. I wrote, as the people prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the place where they were shaken, or the place where they were was shaken. So what was the result? They spoke the word of God boldly. So 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. It's one of my favorite passages for a different reason than what it's used for in this book. But let's go there. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4.
Jesse, would you read 4, 1 through 4, please? as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For, I'm a, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Acquitted, acquitted yeah. It is the Lord who judges me. Okay. What is Paul's point? This is a practice in the discipline of reading the plain meaning of the text. What is Paul's point in this? Never mind. I have a question. Do you want to ask a question? No. Anybody want to take a stab at it? What's the plain meaning? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, just because I'm doing something and I'm unaware of what I'm doing, that doesn't mean what I'm doing is correct. Yes, that's exactly right. Did you have a question? Yes. Go ahead. Great. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. So keep in mind what we just now read. Okay? I have a question. Yeah. Uh, what I said was Christ is entrusted to us in the mystery of, mysteries of God and we must be proven faithful. Okay. Because verse 2 says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must be proven faithful. Yes. And so I thought like from that he was trying to say that. That was the point, to be proven Okay. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that there is another facet of this as well. But we've been given a trust. And so, quite literally, <laughs> what is the trust that we're given at salvation? I'm sorry. The trust that we are given, the Holy Spirit guards what we are given. Okay. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 14 and go to Ephesians 1 real quick. Yeah. Sometimes as I get into trouble explaining things, we just have to go directly to the scripture to save me. Okay, uh, read verse 13. Alyssa, would you read verse 13, please? Uh, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. Good. Uh, so, what is, so what is the deposit? The word of truth, the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the gospel of our salvation, the good news of our salvation is given to us. We've received it. Right? That's the seed that's been received by us. The Holy Spirit guards that seed. Okay? So when we're reading the trust, the trust that we've been given, we've been given the good news of salvation and also the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the trust that we've received, part of it is the Holy Spirit. Okay? We must prove faithful. Right? So that's one facet that we get from 1 Corinthians 4 that we're reading about. Another facet is my mind is not always aware of everything that's going on, but the Lord is aware. So with that in mind, 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. Taven, will you read that for us, please? 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. 
For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, I will also sing with my mind. <coughs> if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one find himself among those who do not understand? Say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying. Yeah, keep going. You might be given thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Beautiful. So now with both of those verses in mind, extract a takeaway. Yeah, Zach, go ahead. Um, tongues is a gift that we are able to use. However, we need to have the discernment in its, in its um, use. Okay, good. Good, what else? What else? Anthony, go ahead. Um, well, to connect it to, just as we know at times what we are doing, and then there's times we do not know what we're doing. Yes. Right? So Paul knew at times he was right. But he said, but even then, does not equip me? So if we're speaking in tongues, at times we may be able to know with an interpretation what we're saying, and then at times we do not know, and that's okay. Yeah. Yes. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I wrote, my mind is only aware of so much but the Spirit sees and knows things beyond my mind. Do you see that? There are times when I find myself in a situation and I don't know what the truth is or what's going on. I am not able to discern it. I don't know. But the Spirit knows. The Lord knows. And I have His Spirit. Do you see? I can participate in the outcome of a situation even when I don't know what's going on because I have the spirit of the Lord and he discloses, according to John 16, he discloses all truth to me. The spirit discloses all truth to me. Okay? So even in a moment where I don't know what's going on, the spirit does. It reminds me of um, Paul Yes. And he's like, what's the interpretation? He said, I don't know, but God does. Yes. And he'll tell you. Yes. That's exactly right. That's a perfect example of the combination of these two verses. Right? Oh, we all may not know with our man's minds, right? But God knows. And he will reveal it to us. Do you see that? So what are the three types of baptism that we have studied so far? Yes. Baptism into Christ. Into Christ, yes. And the Holy Spirit, correct. How are they similar, Jackson? I put a couple points. I said they all bring a new purpose in life and they all set you apart. Yes, I love that. Someone else, how are they similar? Yes. They're all things we can't do without God. All things we can't do without God. Love it. Yes, Katie. I said they all require faith. All require faith. Yes. Mary Lynn? Salvation. Salvation? Okay, good. Debbie? Redemption. Redemption? Good. 
Andrew, what did you write? They all require us to desire to like, move forward in the Lord. All require us to desire to move forward in the Lord. Yes, Valentine. They all require trust and submission to Yahweh's salvation. It's good. Uh, I wrote that they are all similar in immersion. They all involve witness. So repentance, salvation, baptism of the Holy Spirit are all for the purpose of witness, like us witnessing. And then they all involve a change of way of life. They, it changes our lives. How are they different? What did you guys write? How are they different? Stephen, what did you write? necessarily see their faith right away. Sometimes it might take a, like a couple days to, like, for them to start proving like, oh, I've got it, and then start walking by it. So, mm. Stephen, you are a mighty man of God. I love you with all my heart. If you don't know the answer to a question, ask somebody. Make sure you have everything filled out. Okay. All right? Yes. Summer, what did you write? How are they different? I wrote, um, like, the baptism of, like, water and repentance. That seems to be it's like a literal physical baptism, like physically in water, and it's very much symbolic because it's like you had like you know baptism to your dead man, and then coming up to a new creation. So it seems to be very symbolic. And then baptism into Christ is also kind of like a symbolic, more of like a spiritual baptism, mm-hmm. something that's within your spirit that you are baptized with Christ, and you know therefore you are crucified with Him and buried with Him and risen. Mm. And then I wrote that. Um, Baptism of the Holy Spirit is very much, it's kind of all of those. I feel like it's very physical most of the time. It's like spiritual and literal and it's like kind of encompasses all of those. Okay, good. I wrote one changes behavior. That was repentance. The other changes what controls. So the spirit, I wrote that was the spirit. And then the other shifts my aim, which is salvation. So you may not like those. That's okay. Go ahead, Shane. So... I'm just having trouble. I always pictured John's baptism or the baptism of repentance yeah. as being like the before Christ version of what we do now. Like before Christ, it was called John's baptism. But mm. now we're baptized in it like a revealed version of John's baptism. Mm. Now we know what we're being baptized into. Mm. But here, and I could be wrong, it seems as I was listing them as like two separate things mm. that happen. So is John's baptism something that we're still supposed to do besides just our repentance constantly, living a life of repentance? That's a great question. That's a great question. So the idea of John's <laughs> baptism separate than Jesus' baptism, are we still doing that? Yeah. Is that still the same thing? What closes the gap between me and the Father is the Son. When I'm baptized into Jesus, I am now one with the Father again. Previously, a change of behavior or repentance took me from experiencing curses as a result of my behavior and moved me into a place of experiencing blessings as a result of my behavior, okay? I was living in a way that brought curses on my life. Repentance moves me into a way that brings blessings in my life. 
Hmm. Baptism into Jesus restores my relationship with the Father. Okay. So we still participate in it now, but not in an actual baptism like John did. But it's the lifestyle of we've now repented. Correct. And now we get baptized into Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Correct. And can you see how it's been cheapened to eliminate the need to change your behavior? And it's been more about, hey, Jesus loves you. Did you know that? Now you're saved. Right? That's what it's been changed into. It's not been about change your behavior. Or if it is about change your behavior, it's change your behavior, not be baptized in the Spirit, and now do the specific works prepared in advance for you to do. It's more now, hey, be a good person and wait till you die and you'll go to heaven. Right? And so we can see that each of these are necessary components for a holistic understanding of what salvation truly is meant to be. So we talked about Saul's heart changing, right? Like, to, to me, that's like a point of salvation. Yeah. Right? So I would look at that as you know, being brought into Christ. Like, but then you don't see him change yeah. his behaviors. Yeah. Maybe for a very short period of time. Right. Right, so there is no repentance. And what that ultimately leads to is his death. Yeah. So I'm just trying to like take what you're saying and try to fit it into you know a picture that God gives us through the word. Totally. Saul is the king of God, of worldly sorrow. Yeah. Please, please let me come back with you. Can you tell everyone that I'm 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 sorry? Can you tell everyone that? Yeah. It's it's bad. David is a picture of godly sorrow. Mm-hmm. When you contrast Saul's version of sorrow and David's version of sorrow, you get worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, right? David receives the punishment, receives the consequence, goes to the Lord and says, against you only have I sinned. Saul's first thought is, what are people going to think? He even says, pray to your God, to Samuel. (laughs) Okay. Have you been baptized in water? Have you been baptized in the Spirit? Yes. So now follow the early church's example. They heard the Word of God. They put their faith in Christ. They were baptized in water, submitting themselves to Jesus. Miracles, signs, and wonders were performed by ordinary people through the power of the Holy Spirit. People were saved when they saw the miracles because the gospel was demonstrated before their eyes, and God was glorified through this process. So I want to give you a few things Real quick, because it's 9.03. Oh, gosh. Um, So, Genesis 37.31, the robe was dipped in blood. That was the first time that something was immersed or baptized or dipped. It was Joseph's robe dipped in blood. That was Genesis 37.31. We went through Exodus 14.26-31. That was the whole nation being baptized in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2 went with that. Exodus 14, 26 through 31. And 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. That was the whole nation being baptized. And you can write next to it, you see uh, salvation, uh, you see the spirit, and Passover was the blood. In 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, it's another scripture that shows that flooding is like baptism. Noah saved through the waters. 
we see that the earth was flooded. The earth was baptized with water. In the end, the earth will be baptized with fire. Even the earth is personified like a person. The earth longs for the sons of God to be revealed so that it can be redeemed. The earth is longing to be saved. The earth undergoes water baptism, fire baptism. The earth is judged in different parts. We see that. The earth goes through discipline. The earth itself, the creation, is subjected to frustration because the earth itself is going through discipline. It's crazy. We're talking about the earth. Baptized in water, baptized in fire, judged, disciplined, redeemed. Just like a person. Kind of crazy to think about. Psalm 51, 1 through 7, David understands inward washing. And then Revelation 22, 12 through 14, the last mention of washing is made possible by blood. The last mention of washing is only those whose robes have been dipped in the blood of the lamb are able to enter through the gates. So the first time that baptism is mentioned is Joseph's robe dipped in blood. And the last time that baptism is mentioned is only those whose robes have been dipped in blood will be able to enter in through the gates. Baptism. What's that? Revelation 22, 12 through 14. So lastly, did anybody have here questions I'd like answered? Did anybody have a question there that they would like answered? Yes, ma'am. So in the way that we list it, you can say, if you want to go water, blood, and oil, or water, blood, and fire, that would be the way that you could express it like that, with the elements, right? Or you could say repentance, salvation, and Holy Spirit, baptism, or power, repentance, salvation, and power. Baptized in the blood. We are covered in the blood. So it's the blood covering. That's our salvation. <coughs> yes, sir. How do we get to a point so I can interpret tongues? Get to a place where you interpret tongues? It is a gift of the Spirit. Getting to a place where when we are in worship settings, you are less up here and more trying to be in tune with the Spirit of God. Right? Naturally, when you open yourself up and, and, and say... Lord, move in me. And then as tongues are given, you're waiting and expecting, right? And, and then he may move you, start speaking. And you're like, well, what do I say? And he just says, just start speaking. And then the interpretation comes. That's how it's happened for me many times with the interpretation. He'll say, just start speaking. I won't know the fullness of what I'm going to say, so I could look like an idiot. So are you willing to speak out and look like an idiot? Because if you are, then when he moves on your heart, he may give you the interpretation so that you begin speaking and he moves through you. Turn off the logic, edify your spirit, step out in faith. Make sense? It's not a formula. Go ahead. Um, with that question, I know some other congregations in our association believe that the interpretation has to come from the word, or at least that believe that's how it seemed, or that it has to very closely align with scripture. So what LCM has done is 
I, I think you may be referring to the practice of LCM where they always couple what they're about to say with a scripture from the right. word. The reason they started doing that was because it was getting out of hand. People were giving words that were all allegorical or opinion or man's thoughts. And it was just, it was always lovey-dovey and really was like not based in the word. And so they were like, any scripture that you, or any word that you give has to have an accompanying scripture. Well, the sharper that you get with the word, the easier it is to make a number of verses apply to the word that you were going to say anyways. There is no fix-all. We're trying to figure out how do we eliminate nonsense and just get the spirit-led words, right? It's hard to do, especially in an environment where you're learning. Yeah, Garrett. Do you see the different baptisms align with the covenants of Israel as well? Like so, for instance, Abraham is the promise of the covenant, right? Of the restoration of the relationship. You have you have Mosaic, repentance, Davidic, which would be the or the opposite would be water, then repentance, which is blood, and then Jesus, which is newer, which would be fire. I don't see that, but if you did some more work on it and brought some more accompanying scriptures, that might be something that, that you're seeing that I'm not seeing. So maybe do a little bit of digging if that's interesting you. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, so if on salvation, just like in John 21, yep. Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And baptism in the Holy Spirit, we receive it in a different measure. Yeah. He refers to it as it coming upon them yeah. and them being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. How would you define that we receive the Holy Spirit to begin with when we are first preliminarily saved? Yes, so in the beginning, the Holy, we receive the Holy Spirit, so we have the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is the fullness. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in Nick's message that he preached, he talked about how the oil was sprinkled in the oh, beginning. Yeah. But then the oil was given in greater measure uh, through the orderly worship of the priest's service in the temple. Okay, so there's two measures of oil. We see the spirit present at them moving through the waters, right? So as they're in the desert, the pillar is leading them through the desert. They're surviving. Yeah. They're getting the food they need, the water they need. Their shoes aren't wearing out. Their clothes aren't wearing out. Where do they go to the bathroom? I don't know. We teach them to go to the bathroom outside the camp. But the, 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 the thing is, is that they're just surviving. Okay. But they're being, they're being, they see miracles. They're watching the Lord move. The difference is when they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, what I'm saying is allegorical, crossing through the Jordan. It's yeah. like a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now what do they do? Now they're in the promised land. They're defeating giants. They're inheriting their land. They're occupying what was theirs. So the difference would be you receive the Holy Spirit initially. That's the faith that you need to believe. That is us receiving salvation. That's us receiving the word of truth. And we can only do that by the Holy Spirit, right? Something happens, though, when we step into the fullness and we now recognize this is what I was called to do. I need the power to go out and accomplish it. The Holy Spirit comes on us in fullness. And now it's not just that we're believing. Now we are actually taking part in bringing the kingdom of God to this world, right? Many believers are stuck in a just surviving state today. Not furthering the kingdom, but just surviving. I would say it's like they're wandering around in the desert. No growth. Not inheriting the promised land. Not defeating giants. Not advancing the kingdom. Do you see? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Yes. Last one. So you kind of maybe answered this question, but something I wrote down was... uh, 
Why do we not hear words in tongue and interpretation in tongues during worship as much as maybe like a prophetic word? You kind of mentioned like maybe it's like there's fear that we don't want to speak out or step out of faith. I think that there's some fear. I, I, I think, you know, I, I love all you guys. We're all friends. We're all family. Uh, I think that there's a lot of fear, you know, uh, among us, even this group here. You guys are dynamos. Seriously. I, I, when I came back from Israel and was surrounded by, I was so over the moon, elated just to be around you guys. I'm not even kidding. I, we, we love you guys so much, but there is a lot of fear in this room with many people that are here. You don't, re, you don't recognize who you truly are in Christ. And so you're holding back and you're not stepping out in faith and you're, you're waiting for someone else to do it. And, and you guys have fear in this room. Many of you sitting here have fear in this room and you have to say enough and you have to start stepping out. If you don't, other regulars will continue to say the regular things. But if you want to see this group of people move forward into a new place, then you're going to have to step out. You're going to have to step out and speak out. Amen. We have taken a step of faith. Do you remember how we used to always get up with the microphone during the middle of the worship and move things along or give direction? We have taken a step of faith to stop doing that as much and, and put more of that in the hands of the worship team and more of that in the hands of the people. We are choosing to do that sink or swim to create a void, to create a gap that can be filled by others who would step up uh, in to fill that space. Does that make sense? We are purposefully doing that to create more space for people to step up into it. But you're going to have, when I say you, think of me speaking directly to you as if it was just me and you in the room. You are going to have to step out and speak out. Speak out in tongues. Speak out a prophecy. Speak out a word of encouragement. Speak out a scripture. Step out in faith somehow. And if we collectively will do that, then in the same way as people speaking in tongues and praying in the spirit to stir up an atmosphere, it will stir up our maturity as we're moving forth as a body. But you, I am speaking to you, must be the one to do it. It is not someone else's responsibility. It is your responsibility to edify the body when you come in here for worship or when you go to home group or a Bible study or whatever. It's your responsibility. Amen? Amen. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm fairly, fairly new here. Uh, but maybe you've already spoken this to others and others may have this understanding. But what is the standard on that? Is it, are you pushing us along into just speaking out or because I've seen other things being done where people have come up to you. Um, so here, here, here I'll, give you, I'll give you this and then we'll, we'll break. Okay. There are certain people that I know when I listen to them speak out and most of us know, I would say. I would say that most of us in here probably have pretty good discernment which is probably why there's also some fear in not speaking out. Because you know when someone messes it up, and you're like, ooh, they just messed it up. I do not want to be like that. Right? That's what's happening. I know you guys. That's how I know that that's what you're thinking. So, so I know when someone starts to speak out and they just want to hear themselves talk. 
And they're speaking out and they, they go on and on and it's like, my goodness. Me and Nick will look at each other like, jeez. Oh, <laughs> and, so, and so this is why it's important for us to get to know each other too and to get in each other's lives so that your friends can come up to you and tell you like, hey, that was you wanting to hear yourself speak, right? You wanted to just say stuff, okay? Um, what I would say is I am not just encouraging people to just start speaking out. I'm saying you say, Lord, move on me. And then when he moves on you, not being like, oh, I don't know. I can feel you moving on me, Lord. I don't know. I'm scared. What do you think, Lord? I can feel, I think the Lord is maybe asking me to say something. I don't know if I should. I don't know, maybe. Right? Instead of all that, bypass all that and speak out. That's what I'm saying. Bypass all that and just speak out. That's what I'm saying. So take that upon yourself. You speak out. We're good? All right. Do it before Sunday morning. Like, yeah. instead of coming Sunday morning and be like, Lord, give me something. Amen. Do it during the week. Yes. <laughs> Lord, give me something for Sunday morning. Yes. What Elder Ben said. Yes. Stephen, pray for us. Say that that's